0: Let's settle in now for another year in movie music with host Jeff Cummings.
1: Thanks for being here today. We have some great songs from 1994 to hear, and a conversation with one of the nominees for the 1994 Oscar for Best Original Song on today's show. As we talk about this historic list of nominees, remember that I often reveal some big plot details from the movies discussed. In addition to 1994 producing a historic list of Oscar-nominated songs, the world's news feed was busy with some of the decade's biggest headlines. In January, Nancy Kerrigan was hit on the knee by a man hired by rival Tanya Harding's ex-husband. In April, grunge rock star Kurt Cobain committed suicide. In May, the channel connecting England and France opened. In May, Nelson Mandela was voted president of South Africa and the month of June was spent following the drama surrounding the death of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. Police pursued Simpson's ex-husband, O.J. Simpson, in a white Ford Bronco, an event that was viewed live by an estimated 95 million people. While O.J. was driving down a Los Angeles highway, Disney was celebrating a big opening weekend for its newest animated movie, The Lion King. Its $45 million budget was the largest for an animated musical, and you could see and hear where all of that money went. I hope a lot of that money went to Elton John and Tim Rice, the two men who wrote the songs for the movie, including the three that were nominated for the Oscar. This is the second time that three nominated songs came from one film, and Disney's second time achieving this after 1991's Beauty and the Beast. With the hiring of Tim Rice for The Lion King, Disney kept the Broadway sensibility that made The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin big hits, while sprinkling in a strong pop sensibility with the addition of Elton John. As he told us in episode 60 of the Best Song Podcast, Tim Rice was hired by Disney to work on The Lion King at the same time that Alan Menken and Howard Ashman were finishing up work on Beauty and the Beast. Rice was asked to make a brief detour to write three songs for Aladdin, one of which would bring him his first Academy Award. Alan Menken opted to put his full energy into not only finishing the Aladdin film score, but later to shepherd the Beauty and the Beast Broadway show set for a spring 1994 premiere. So Disney executives had to figure out who could best collaborate with Rice on the songs for The King of the Jungle, later renamed The Lion King. I invited Sir Tim Rice back to the show to talk about getting Elton John onto the Disney payroll for The Lion King. If the timeline is correct, and you can you can totally correct me if I'm wrong, you are working full time, like you're really full bore on the Lion King score, and working on new songs for the Beauty and the Beast stage production. Is that right? Because the timeline seems to suggest that.
0: Yes, I I don't remember too much of a clash. Um, like by you know by tonight, you've got to do a new song for Beauty and a new one for Lion King. Um, but you, you seem to be so much in command of your facts, which I appreciate. I said, kind of, you know, I, I thought in a way an insane suggestion from the point of view, of you wouldn't get him. I said, what about Elton John? And they said, good idea. And I said, I don't think, you, I don't think he'll do it. Never mind. We'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll try. They were very confident. And in the end, they got him. But first I had a phone call from Elton. Um, About two weeks after I'd suggested him, he rang me up out of the blue. I didn't know him that well. I knew him a bit. I'd met him. We'd actually even written one song together years before for one of his albums. Um, And uh, he said, what's all this King of the Jungle thing? And I said, well, it's a a new Disney project. And I told him what I knew about the story, which wasn't much. And uh, he said, well, I'm so flattered. I'm very grateful for the fact that you've asked me. But I can't do it. I'm too busy, and he. I also implied, or he also implied, that the deal was not good. And you know, he was a you know hardworking musician, and he would be much better employed touring and making albums than doing a film, which might not even happen or might not work. And I thought, fair enough. I was right. Disney was wrong. They 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 haven't got him. And then I got a call two days later from his manager saying, when do we start? And I thought, hello, Elton's got a much better deal than I have. (laughs) This is very annoying. But I was thrilled, obviously thrilled, that Elton John was going to do, um, I was going to work with Elton on this movie, which, you know, still hadn't been completely, wasn't wasn't, wasn't a home run yet by any means. It it, it could have easily collapsed at any point. But we got going and um, I learned fairly speedily that Elton liked the words First, before he wrote any tunes. And gradually the the Lion King um, team took shape, directors, scriptwriters, animators, a huge team working on the Lion King. And we were running about a year behind Aladdin. Aladdin was getting quite near to the finishing post. I'd done about three months panic work on Aladdin, helping them get the film finished. And Aladdin came out and I was still working. I was now back on the Lion King working on getting that ready because that had to come out the following year. And I was back full-time on Lion King, doing a bit of promotion on Aladdin in the in, the, in, in my spare time, as it were. And Lion King, I had the experience now, um, not to mention a few awards. Um, I had the experience and felt a little bit more confident that I could pull my weight a bit more and, say, you know, chip in with more ideas. And I was working with some very experienced and... and um, Gifted people in the in the in the in the animation division, and um, gradually the Lion King took shape. And it helped, you know, it helped that the words came first um, because we didn't, as it were, waste Elton's time by asking him to keep sending tunes and um, possibly saying some of them wouldn't work. But once Elton had a lyric, that's how he's worked ninety nine percent of his of his career. It seems to inspire him to come up with the right sort of melody. It might be a ballad. It might be a funny number. It might be a powerful, you know, rocker. It might be a love song. But he can usually get it right first time. And, of course, we wouldn't just just send him a tune. I mean, uh, sorry, just send him a lyric. We'd send him, you know, Can You Feel The Love Tonight? This is, you know, the big love song between um, the two leading characters or, you know, the leading Simba and and Nala, or we'd say this is the villain's song for Scar, and it's and I would give what turned out in most cases to be the finished lyric. Sometimes when Elton came back with the melody, singing it almost every time exactly what I'd sent, I would listen to it and think that's brilliant. But words wise, I could change a few things. Not not
1: many, but you know, just change the odd word here and there or make a rhyme fit better. So you said that. Elton required that the lyrics come to him, and then you write, then he writes the music, and and kind of to help him save a little time. So this was obviously very different from what you had been doing with Alan and with Andrew. Did that affect the way you wrote um, your process at all? Yes, it did.
0: I think the interesting thing is that by and large, and I'm generalizing here, a composer, I believe, should be free to wander. You know, it should be a tune is is always in itself slightly abstract. Um, Whereas lyrics have to be, you know, they can be abstract as well. They can be vague and they can be full of metaphors and they can be incomprehensible. But they've got to be basically, in my view, especially for theatre, they've they've, they've more or less got to be on the nail. you've, you've, You've got to, they've got to make sense. And they don't want to ramble. One of the great things about a good lyric is that it's concise and it doesn't ramble on and if you don't have a tune you can often be inclined to say well i can say all this in three sentences but if you say something in nine syllables it's always going to be better than something said in nine words or nine lines and so you have the lyricist who i believe should be concise against the composer who should be free to wander and it's harder when you don't have a tune and you don't know how many syllables will be needed it's slightly harder to be concise in some respects it's easier because if you find you can't get a rhyme in a in a you know in line one and line two well you change it and put line one and line three to rhyme and um you, you can make your verses at each line of each verse can be as long as you like or as short as you like and your choruses i mean you can do anything but once you've Written verse one and chorus one, if that's the structure of the song, then you've then you've you set yourself a, 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 if you like, a sort of pattern. Verse two has got to have the same number of syllables and rhyming pattern as verse one. But if you can't make verse two work, you can always go back and tweak verse one. But you can't do that if you've got a tune. If if you've already got a tune, you are trapped, which is not the right word, but you are forced to be to, to follow the tunes pattern. I mean if, if, if you were really unhappy with something in the tune, you could say, uh could we have three notes at the end, three more syllables but if a tune's good you you, you don't want to do that. So it's different you've you've, you''ve you've got to be really quite strict with yourself when writing words first and and you and you and I would usually having written, a verse or a chorus, or indeed the whole song, I would go to the piano and I would sing them just to see if they sounded okay sung. Now, obviously, I didn't have a tune, but I would put a very simple three-chord tune to them, which is about all I can do. So they all sounded like a a good Tammy Wynette Hmm. B-side. And then I would send it off. Obviously, I wouldn't send my tune off, but I would send the lyric off to Elton and back in about two minutes, it seemed at times, certainly a couple of days, a CD, as it was, or actually back in the early days, it was probably still a cassette, and a CD will come back with my lyric being sung by Elton John. And it was nothing like the tune I'd, I'd imagined. And for about 10 seconds, I thought, oh, what's he done with my tune? Which he hadn't heard. yeah. And then I thought, well, I'd rather like my tune. And then after 20 seconds, I thought, this is this is better than my tune. And then after a verse, I thought, this is sensationally good. And mm-hmm. obviously, I would never seriously have suggested using my tune. It was just a sort of just to see if the words sang, because there's some words which are sometimes difficult to sing. And some sounds, if you, if you want a big sound at the end of a song, you don't want to end it on a sort of, Slightly difficult. I mean, it's 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 better to end it on a word like now or sh- or o oh sound rather than an oo sound or an e sound. Listen, there are plenty of examples of songs that do all these things, but for a theatre, if, if you want a big final word, a word like show or go or um, die or something, you know, th- th- these are the words that sound good when
1: when sung at top volume. Well, I. It seemed to me, and you and you say you had to be strict, but it seemed like you had a you felt a little freer because you didn't have that restriction of the tune to kind of yeah. lock you in. You you had a little freedom to kind of play with the lyric before you were able to turn it in. You're absolutely right. Um, but as I said, once you've you just have to resist
0: the urge to say, I can't say this in 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 this verse, so I'll make the verse six lines instead of four. Right. And that might be better, but on the it's probably going to be worse because if you can keep it short, that's 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 one thing, I think. And of course, as I said, once you set a pattern of syllables and rhyming, rhyming positions. And rhyme is quite important in film and theatre. It's not so important. True rhymes are not so important in rock and roll and um but um once you've done Verse one, you've set yourself this rigid pattern, which you have to repeat in two, three, four, five, and six, or change verse one if you're not happy with it.
1: The first song that we hear in the movie is Circle of Life. It serves as the movie's prologue, though the song itself does not directly comment on the proceedings, as Bell did in Beauty and the Beast, or Arabian Nights did in Aladdin. The scene plays with no dialogue as we see various animals in Africa traveling to a rock formation where the official announcement of the birth of the new lion cub Simba is taking place. The first half of the song covers the animal migration to Pride Rock, with the second half introducing us to the newly born Simba and the baboon Rafiki's lifting of Simba to present the prince to his subjects.
2: ¡Sí, va,
3: rock on the planet and thinking step into the sun there's more to see than can ever be seen more to do than can ever be done there's far too much to take in more to find than can ever Rolling high through the sapphire sky, keeps great and small on the endless round. It's the sun.
1: The lyrics go very deep, deeper than most animated movie songs do, and you might find yourself finding new meaning in them with each new listen. As great as Tim Rice's lyrics are, it's the music by Elton John that pushes the envelope. All of the instruments performed in the song are percussion instruments, including a piano, with the exception of the pan flute during the musical bridge after the first chorus. It can be very difficult to keep a harmony in a song without strings or woodwinds, but the chorus harmonizes in the background in various points, singing in chords that would normally be played by the strings or woodwinds. The song was so impactful when Disney executives heard it that they figured the full performance of Circle of Life should serve as the film's first trailer in November 1993. Dick Cook, who was the president of Distribution for Disney, said, quote, We were all so taken by the beauty and majesty of this piece that we felt like it was probably one of the best four minutes of film that we've seen. So you can't see the visuals here on the show, but I think you can feel the beauty and majesty of Circle of Life when you hear it. When that trailer came out in fall 1993, I watched it at least 10 times. Every time I went to the movies for a month, I would sneak into the movie theater that was playing it so I could watch the scene. Almost immediately, it became one of my favorite songs of all time, and it remains that way. How did the song move from the idea phase to the recording? Well, um, we 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 tried originally
0: a light-hearted opening to the film, which was all about you know lots of animals, and it, it was meant to be a sort of funny song, and it was quite bouncy. And Elton Elton did do a tune for it. Um, but it wasn't right for the opening. I, I mean, and at that point, we 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 didn't really have a. Um, I mean, the, the the visuals even weren't in place. I think it was called Circle of Life. I've got some old demos. One of these days, I'll let them all out. Um, you know, demos of false starts and things, which are very interesting. But it had to be. It became clear we needed a fairly dramatic song, which um, had a sort of philosophical point of view, if you like. Um, and I wrote the lyric and I was quite pleased with it. Um, no tune at that point. And Elton, normally he recorded the demos of, of, of the lyrics he was sent wherever he was. When, when Circle of Life, when I delivered the, uh, or told him, I'll give you the lyric on Tuesday, he said, well, I'm in London, so, so we're gonna record it on Thursday. Um, we booked the studios in London. I thought, great. And he, and he said, come along to the session. I thought, fantastic. And I said, well, I'll, I'll give you the lyric in two days ahead. And he said, no, don't worry about that. Just bring it to the studio. So and I hadn't quite finished it. So it gave me two more days to finish it. And I went to the studio and gave him the lyric. And he was there already. And he was playing around on, on the piano, trying to get some the feel, because he knew it had to be a sort of song at the pace of, I don't know, take a random example it was a it was a hey jude rather than you know um a rock song rather than i can't get no satisfaction it was it was a that sort of song um or in 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 his terms it was a don't let the sun go down on me rather than um crocodile rock right okay and and, um anyway i gave him the lyric and he said yeah that's good and he began playing it you know from the day we arrive on the planet and the tune was always that sort of anthemic feel which was just right but the tune the melody varied a bit and then after about and I was sitting there in the in the in the studio control room listening to this and he had Guy Babylon one of his band great great guy who played lots of instruments and also was very good on tempo and finding rhythms and styles and Guy was pumping in different feels for the for for the rhythm Um, and they settled on one and Elton began singing the words. And gradually this song, I was very excited. It was taking shape. And then after about half an hour, he said, could I have one more line? I thought, oh, no. You know, it's just, <laughs> uh. And, and I said, where? And he said, well, coming up to, the, you know, it's the band of hope. It's the leap of faith. It's the something of love. I can't remember my own words now. I said, it's building up. And we just need one more line to get to that top bit of the circle of life. And I just said, On the path unwinding, he said, great, like it. And he put that in, and it worked. And unwinding is a good word. It's a nice word. Oh, yeah. And it just fitted the whole thing. And within an hour and a half of me going to the studio with just a lyric, which Elton hadn't seen, I came out with a demo of Elton singing what sounded to me like a big hit, which it was. Yeah, absolutely.
1: He nailed it. <laughs> um so you, you you didn't really have the visuals, you know, a storyboard to kind of guide you with this. You're you're basically it seems like the one that's gonna guide how the song is gonna go, how the visuals are gonna go. And you I said don't... it's very philosophical. Where did where did that come from in your brain? Well, I was able to say something that that I
0: kind of believed in, which is not always the case in songs. You often have to write particularly musicals, you often have to write songs expressing a point of view you don't believe right. in. But I just thought the circle of life, and, and and I knew that was one of the themes of the the show, you know, about how everything, you know, we were born, we die, we, you know, turn into whatever, grass or whatever you like, all these images. And um, that that was something I had in mind. I'm pretty sure when, when I when I wrote the words for the circle of life that, that I certainly had a very good idea of what the visuals are going to be. And and a lot of the visuals were there already, but um they obviously hadn't been fitted to any tune because they hadn't got a tune. I don't think I can begin to come to claim, begin to claim that the lyrics, my lyrics altered the visuals, but I think they they helped, you know, clearly, oh, yeah. and, and and it fitted so well. That you know, it, it, they they built the song up, and then, then of course at the end in the film there's that boom, hammer blow, and it's a it's a great opening to the film. And in the show, it's 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 different, but it's
1: again a spectacular opening. And Carmen Twilly sang the film version, and she seemed like the perfect person to sing the song. How did you find her?
0: I didn't find her. Um, I'm very glad that Disney did. Um, I mean, you know, she was known, of course. But um, she was just magnificent. You know, we we're very lucky to to have her. I mean, I think an awful lot of great artists um, are pleased if 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 they feel their work is good to to work on um, a Disney film because it's going to be probably quite commercial. But more important, if you've got someone like Elton John involved, it's going to be good. The song, so um, I guess Carmen probably thought Elton John, Disney, nice story, African
1: background, all this, you know, what's not to like, as the cliche goes. The most compelling portion of the lyrics are the words sung in the Zulu language. The song begins with a chant written and performed by Lebo M., the South African musician who struggled to break through in the American music industry until he met composer Hans Zimmer and worked with him on the 1992 movie The Power of One. Lebo M. and Zimmer collaborated on that score, with Lebo supplying the choral elements. And it was Hans Zimmer who suggested Lebo M. as the vocalist for the opening of Circle of Life. Lebo M. wrote the opening chant in Zulu for Circle of Life, though he does not get official songwriting credit with Elton John and Tim Rice. The Zulu lyrics he and a 57-person chorus sing actually tie into the movie. Nats Ngoinyama baba siti um inganyomea translated to English as Here comes a lion, a father. Yes, it's a lion. That's followed by the chant that will be repeated throughout the remainder of the song. Engonyama ngu amabala which means a lion and a leopard. By now, you have probably figured out that Engonyama. Means lion, and Hans Zimmer had a big um, role in helping you and Elton yeah. with those songs. Tell me about how he helped you shape not just Circle of Life, but the rest of the song score.
0: Well, he he, um, I mean, it's it's an oversimplification of what he did, but he basically orchestrated and arranged the songs with Lebo M, who did wonderful jobs um, on on um, most of the material and a lot of a lot of the stuff in between. I mean, Hans. Mm-hmm. Won an Oscar deservedly for it, and it was—I um, mean, the actual songs, as per Elton's demo, weren't changed. But it was the orchestration and the way they were arranged and the way they impacted the story that was so important, and that's what Hans did, because um, the, the the entire score—not not not just the songs, but the entire score was very—it it, it was one thing. It's like a with a with a good musical on stage it should never really be unless it's a jukebox musical it should never be a collection of songs however good they might be it should be a piece of music that goes on for 90 minutes even two hours and it's it's a it's it's a two-hour thing it's not a collection of five-minute things and um that's what Hans did he he made sure that it was it it was a hole with a W. Um, It was, it was something that went from A to
1: A to Z, if you like via B, C, D, E, so on. Yeah. And I really, I think the use of percussion throughout circle of life is just absolutely amazing. It's, I mean, a lot of that stuff, it just seems like you're in Africa with that song. It just really seemed to work. Uh, It it,
0: it certainly did. Um, I mean, the, the, the African feel, which is more marked even in the uh, in in the show than it is in the film, um, but it's very important. And I actually saw The Lion King when it opened in Johannesburg, and it was a big hit in many countries in Africa. And uh, it was a bit nervous. You think, oh, are they going to? Are some of these countries going to actually accept it? But um, you know, because it's not not you know certain parts of it are not written by Africans. This went. Lee Bohem was so good because you know he was a great African um, musician, African American musician, who was obviously delighted to work on this project, which featured people like me and Elton. That sort of problem never never came up in the in the creative process. Everybody was
1: thinking we're all working at this to the, to the same end. After the dramatic opening that accompanied Circle of Life. We flash forward a few years to the murder of the mighty Lion King Mufasa by his brother, Scar. This is where the Lion King veers into Shakespeare territory, mirroring the story of Hamlet. Scar convinces Simba that the young cub is responsible for Mufasa's death, prompting Simba to flee his homeland. In the desert wasteland, Simba meets meerkat Timon and warthog Pumbaa, the animated equivalent of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Timon is voiced by Tony Award-winning actor Nathan Lane, and Pumbaa's voice is by Ernie Sabella, who acted alongside Nathan Lane in the 1996 Broadway revival of A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. Timon and Pumbaa convince Simba to let go of his grief and sadness through the nominated song Hakuna Matata, which is the Swahili way of saying, no worries. Timon and Pumbaa sing about the lives they lead, which leads to this problem-free philosophy. It's pretty much a 180-degree turn from Circle of Life, this one being a song about flatulent warthogs and eating bugs. And the Academy loved it so much that it was the second song from The Lion King to earn an Oscar nomination.
4: When the world turns its back on you, you turn your back on the world. Well, that's not what I was taught. Then maybe you need a new lesson. Repeat after me. <clears throat> Hakuna Matata. What? Hakuna Matata. It means no worries. Hakuna Matata. What a wonderful phrase. Hakuna Matata. Ain't no peasant craze. It means no worries for the rest of your days. It's a our problem, problem free. Hakuna Matata. Hakuna Matata? Yeah, it's our motto. What's a motto? Nothing. What's a motto with you? <laughs> you know what? <laughs> these two words will solve all your problems. That's right. Take Pumbaa, for example. Why? When he was a young warthog. When I was a young warthog. Very nice. Thanks. He found his aroma like a certain appeal. He could clear the savannah after every meal. i must answer sensitive soul, though I seem thick-skinned. And it hurt that my friends never stood downwind. And oh, the shame. He was a shame. What a change in my name. Oh, what's your name? And I got down How did you feel? Every time that I. Hey, Pumper, not in front of the kids. Oh, sorry. Akuna Matata What a wonderful phrase
3: Akuna Matata
4: To our humble home. You live here? We live wherever we want. Yup, home is where your rump rests. <laughs> it's beautiful. I'm starved.
2: I'm so hungry I could eat a
4: whole zebra. Ah, we're fresh out of zebra. Any animal? Nuh-uh. Hippo? Nope. Listen, kid, if you live with us, you have to eat like us. Hey, this looks like a good spot to rustle up some grub. Ew, what's that? A grub. What's it look like? Ew, gross. Mm. Tastes like chicken. Slimy yet satisfying. These are rare delicacies. Mm. Mm. Pecans with a very pleasant crunch. You're learning to love them. I'm telling you, Keb, this is the great life. No rules, no responsibilities. Ooh, the little cream filled kind. And best of all, no worries. Well, Keb. Oh well, akuna matata. Ooh. Slimy, it's satisfying. That's it.
1: The two people who were hired as the voices of young and adult Simba did not get to sing in Hakuna Matata. Jonathan Taylor Thomas was one of the breakout stars of ABC's Home Improvement, but he was not a professional singer. Jason Weaver played the young Michael Jackson in the ABC series The Jacksons and American Dream, and his singing talents got him the job performing on Hakuna Matata and the catchy tune I Just Can't Wait to Be King. Matthew Broderick, who won a Tony in 1983 for the play Brighton Beach Memoirs and was a year away from winning another one for the musical How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, was surprisingly not the singing voice of adult Simba in Hakuna Matata, though he was the speaking voice. The job of singing adult Simba's songs went to Joseph Williams, the son of the famous composer John Williams, and an accomplished singer himself who was about to become the lead singer of the band Toto. Hakuna Matata quickly became a favorite song among kids, and a new popular catchphrase, that managed to become part of the vernacular i looked through your song catalog and i don't think you've written a song that even compares to hakuna matata i mean you wrote some comedy stuff for joseph and the amazing technicolor dreamcoat but farting warthogs <laughs> that that had to be um quite the um assignment to have to write about you know a warthog passing gas
0: Yes, that's. Um, I think that's a first. <laughs> um, and I'm often. I've often said that whether you're writing about an Argentine dictator's wife giving a political speech to ten thousand people, or whether you're talking about a warthog with wind problems, it's the same job. You have to make the lyric believable for the situation. I was always a bit upset about *Hakuna Matata* because there were two verses. And they weren't, they weren't in the original film. And they I, that was fine in a way because you didn't want to go on too long in the film. The film is only 19 minutes. But in the stage show, I still think, and about every three years I say, why can't we do this? There are two verses. The meerkat has a verse and the warthog has a verse. And the meerkat verse is all about, it's the same thing. You know, this, this, is, this is my gig. And... And I don't really care if it goes wrong. I mean, that's the sort of thing. Like the warthog is says, "Well, you know, all right, I've, I've got a women problem, but hey, a Matata. And the meerkat um sings a song about, you know, I was trained to because, as you probably know, meerkats sort of stand outside the burrows and sort of look around, and that's all they seem to do. <laughs> and 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 he and the meerkat lyric, which you can get on one or two of the subsequent Lion King albums, has a verse about. I was, you know, standing guard and, you know, but then I realised I was wasting my time. You know, I was wrong. And I decided, akuna Matata, nothing matters. Um, I'm not sure that's a philosophy one should put too much emphasis on, but at times you should say kuna Matata, hey, something went wrong, but, you know. And I think the song, it would only be, only be added 45 seconds to it, I think Hakuna Matata in the show could have the meerkat's verse put back in. I, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a funny verse. The song is incredibly popular, to my surprise. If you only have Pumba's verse, it becomes a song about a farting warthog. Fair enough. But it's not, it's not really about that. It's about forgetting your troubles and, and saying, oh, you know, this doesn't really matter. That's the, and the, if the meerkat is saying that, saying Hakuna Matata about something completely different, then that point comes over. But if the meerkat doesn't say anything except Hakuna Matata, you feel that all they're worried about is, all they're worried about is, you know, making sure they're not downwind from Pumbaa. Mm-hmm. Um and, and, it's, and it's about more than that. And I was rather hoping, I'm still hoping really, that the show could put that in. When I do the song um, on stage, at charity events. I mean, I don't do it, but 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 I I I have a few. I mean I, I'm about to do a tour of England, funnily enough. Uh, um I do 20, 20 shows and um it's two hours of songs I've written lyrics for. And we usually end with the kuna because people love that one. And um I always put the Meerkat verse in as well. But it, it 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 was a song I thought was a bit of a throwaway. It's just a fun, but it became incredibly popular.
1: Yeah, so, it's amazing how songs that you think aren't going to have much of an impact just yeah. explode. Exactly. So at the end of that song, it's it's kind of that <laughs> montage, of, you know, through time and Simmer grows up. Yeah. And I'm I'm actually quite surprised. This is probably the one sticking point I have with the song is that Matthew Broderick didn't get to sing which you know he was about to be a big broadway star with how to succeed in business so yeah. was there ever discussion about letting him perform to sing any of the songs
0: i don't recall that to be honest um i wouldn't have been party so much to the um who who would do the vocals in certain places um and i guess there would have been lots of meetings um to which I was not a party, either because I wasn't in the country or whatever. But um, I think it's a pity that Matthew didn't, didn't have something more to do. But um, he was great, you know, uh, in the dialogue and everything.
1: The final song that appears in the actual film is called Can You Feel the Love Tonight, performed mainly by Crystal Edwards with an assist from Sally Dworski as the singing voice of the grown-up lioness Nala, and Joseph Williams again as the singing voice of the grown-up Simba.
4: I can see what's happening. What? And they don't have a clue. Who? They'll fall in love, and here's the bottom line. Our trio's down to two. Oh. The sweet caress of twilight. There's magic everywhere. And with all this romantic atmosphere, Disasters in the air In love tonight It can be assumed His carefree days With us
6: on history
4: In In short, our past
1: As has been the case with Disney movies since Beauty and the Beast, a pop version of an existing song was created for the end credits in The Lion King. The song performed by Elton John in the credits is also called Can You Feel the Love Tonight, but it does not use the same lyrics as the film version and doesn't carry the same meaning. It feels very much like an Elton John ballad, though this would be one of the few that he did not write with his longtime lyricist, Bernie Taupin. If you're going to branch out and sing someone else's lyrics, you can't go wrong with the deep undertones of Tim Rice's wordplay. Though the lyrics are different, the melody is lifted from the film version to connect the two songs. Where the film version was about a blossoming love, Elton John's version comes from the point of view of adult Simba, singing about adult love and compassion. This was the version that the Academy nominated as the third song from The Lion King.
2: Make kings and vagabonds believe.
1: The work you did on this with your lyrics, it reminds me very much of Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, because that song that you did for Vito was born out of the melody for Oh, What a Circus. So you got two different songs from one melody. Uh, When you were writing Can You Feel the Love Tonight, both versions, did that cross your mind? Like, oh, I've done this before. This should be a piece of cake. That's a good question. I I don't really think. I mean,
0: I was I was kind of I I mean, the, the, the first version I wrote was the version that Elton sang. Okay, And I thought that would be um, used more in the um, film than it was. There are lyrics for um, Nala and um, Simba in the film, but they're different from the Elton ones. Whereas the lyrics that Timon and Pumbaa sing are nothing like the lyrics that Elton sang or or, or, or Simba sings. Um, But... I remember Jeffrey Katzmack saying, we, we, you know, that the, the look should be more than just love. It's got to be about, you know, she's telling him, you, you know, pull your finger out, mate, you know, you're a king, you've got a, you, you've got a job to do. And I always imagined it to be in a scene between the two, between the two, between Nala and Simba. And it was a bit of that, but it was also about Timon and Pumbaa worried about Nala taking Simba away from their gang.
1: Yeah, it just, it fits. It fits. it, worked, it wasn't it, what I originally thought. <laughs> this version of the song was quite popular. It got as high as number four on the Billboard charts in August 1994, kept away from number one by Lisa Loeb's Stay. That song also appeared in a movie, the Ben Stiller movie Reality Bites, but it was not written for the movie, so the Academy did not allow it to be listed as an eligible song. You and Elta made some history, three Oscar nominations in one year with those three songs, something that Beauty of the Beast had only done. Um, And and I'm curious, did, not as you were writing, but as the film comes out, the the songs are getting popular and, and everything, were you thinking that this could be possible, three nominations for your songs? I was
0: pretty certain we'd get a nomination. I didn't think we'd get three. When we did get three, I was a little bit worried that they would cancel each other out. That *Blind mm. King* fans might vote *Circle of Life*, Akuna Matata, *Can You Feel It After Night*, and they might all get twenty percent or something, and one one of the other songs might get twenty one percent.
1: Right.
0: <laughs> so we'd be beaten by a song that nobody really knew. It was, I mean, I, I I would love to know one day exactly the you know I think twenty years twenty years after the event the Academy should reveal how much people won by and which came second. It'd be very really interesting because 20 years later, you don't really care. Um, you know, if you, it'd, be, it'd be quite fun to find out, you know, and I would invite, if I had the Academy running the Academy, I'd say, right, everybody everybody who was nominated in 1994, we're having a big dinner, come back, and we're going to reveal all the positions. And we're we're we're, we're going to give second, third, fourth, fifth prizes to people. I mean, quite fun. Yeah, that and could be. Nobody would be really um, uptight about it because the result's already there. And I was slightly surprised at the time that Hakuna Matata even got nominated because, but it has become very, very popular. People love it.
1: More history was made with the 1994 nominees besides getting three songs from one movie. For the first time in the history of the Academy Award for Best Original Song, all five nominated tunes from 1994 were written by at least one singer-songwriter who had at least one song in the top ten of the Billboard Hot 100 singles, or at least one album on the Billboard Hot 200 albums list at some point in their careers. This beats out the era of the singer-songwriter that we saw in the mid-1980s, when only four songs in one year held this distinction each in 1984 and 1985. Obviously, Elton John was a major appearance on the Billboard album and singles charts for years before he got another top 10 song and album with The Lion King. Another Billboard mainstay by the time 1994 rolled around was Randy Newman, who made a play for another Oscar nomination in 1994 with his song Make Up Your Mind from the movie The Paper. This was his second collaboration with director Ron Howard, the first one being Parenthood in 1989. With Newman earning an Oscar nomination for the song I Love to See You Smile from Parenthood, I guess it was only natural that Newman lobbied for the job to write the music for the paper. There isn't much underscore in the movie, and it's obvious that Newman and Howard want it make up your mind to be noticed by listing it in the opening credits. But the song doesn't come until the end credits, and on the surface you might not really connect the dots between this song and the plot of the movie, about a day in the life at a New York newspaper. But there is a connection, particularly in the final act of the movie. The paper's managing editor, a steely woman named Alicia, played by Glenn Close, wants the front page of the next day's paper to claim that two teenage boys are guilty of killing two men. But Henry, the Metro editor, played by Michael Keaton, has proof that they are innocent, and he fights for a front page headline that mentions that. There are scenes in the printing room where Alicia and Henry are arguing about which Front page to print. The workers are told at first to go with the guilty headline, but later that night, a guilt ridden Alicia calls the print room asking them to stop the presses and run the other front page option. I would imagine the lead press room chief hung up the phone and said, Make up your mind, as he changed the printing plates. And that leads us to the song Make Up Your Mind, where Randy Newman sings about not being able to decide on several things, including whether to be thin or fat square or round, riding the bus, or driving it. He's accompanied by a woman who gets no screen credit in the movie, adding a funky gospel feel to the song. Randy Newman seemed to have a successful collaboration with Ron Howard, getting two Oscar nominations, this would be the last time composer and director worked together. Most likely because Ron Howard started to shift toward more dramatic films beginning the following year with Apollo 13, and Randy Newman was starting a new collaboration with a rising animation studio called Pixar. Another collaboration that was set to end after 1994 was the writing partnership between James Ingram and Carol Bayer Sager. There's no information about why they chose to part ways after writing the song Look What Love Has Done for the comedy Junior, but it's surprising given that they earned Oscar nominations for both songs that they worked on together for the movies. After getting that Oscar nomination for The Day I Fall in Love in 1993, Bayer-Sager and Ingram went to work with singer Patti Smythe and film composer James Newton Howard for a song for Junior, which gives us Arnold Schwarzenegger getting pregnant in an experimental procedure and Emma Thompson playing his love interest. This movie followed Emma Thompson's Oscar-winning acting in Howard's End in 1992 and her double-nominated roles in the very dramatic movies The Remains of the Day and In the Name of the Father in 1993. Quite the change in direction in her acting resume. Ivan Reitman directed Junior, and this is the first film of his that has contained an original song since Ghostbusters in 1984. The 1986 movie Legal Eagles had a lot of songs in it, and the Rod Stewart song Love Touch was not written for the movie, in case you were wondering. Reitman could have done without this song for Junior, called Look What Love Has Done. I'm not sure how the song connects to the plot, especially at the point where it plays in the film. About 82 minutes into the movie, Arnold has dressed as a woman in order to hide from the prying eyes of those looking to cash in on his pregnancy and is staying at a retreat for pregnant women. The montage of Arnold, who says he is a former East German female athlete given lots of steroids, features him doing Lamaze classes and bonding with the other women. Over this not-really-funny montage is Patty Smythe singing this not-really-necessary song. <laughs> ¶¶
5: this morning feeling lonely so much my heart just does not understand there were times
1: I'm being a bit too harsh on the song. It does have a little bit of relevance, as Arnold has started to realize that he loves Emma Thompson's character during this sequence. But it being sung by a woman doesn't make sense. Perhaps if James Ingram had performed the song, or if he and Patti Smythe had done it as a duet, it might have affected me a bit more. The song might have had a bit more impact earlier in the film when Arnold and Emma Thompson are dancing at a reception during a medical convention. Though they're not really falling in love at this point, at least the song would have set us up for the growing love story. Instead, the filmmaker shelled out a lot of money for the rights to use the Cole Porter song, I've Gotten You Under My Skin, for the scene when they dance. Cassandra Wilson sings it at the medical convention's reception, and the song becomes a duet between Frank Sinatra and Bono in the end credits. So the Oscar-nominated song from 1936 had more prominence than the one original song in the movie. It's amazing that the two-minute performance of Look What Love Has Done impacted members of the Motion Picture Academy enough to rank it high on their nomination ballot and give Carol Bayer Sager and James Ingram their second consecutive Oscar nominations. With four people listed as official songwriters, This is the first time a nominated song has had four writers since Arthur's theme in 1981. Coincidentally, co-written by Carol Bayer Sager. So those are the five Oscar-nominated songs from 1984. The three from The Lion King, which are Circle of Life, Hakuna Matata, and Can You Feel the Love Tonight? And then Look What Love Has Done from Junior, and Make Up Your Mind from the Paper. This meant that once again, Madonna was on the outside looking in on an Oscar nomination. This time, it was for the song I'll Remember from the movie with honors, which she wrote with her first songwriting partner, Patrick Leonard. I'll Remember was initially a song written by Patrick Leonard and Richard Page, until Madonna grabbed hold of it in her attempt to get back into the critics' good graces. Her transition into more erotic themes with the release of such songs as Erotica and Fever didn't go well with critics or fans, but she was ready to turn it around with I'll Remember. Unlike Look What Love Has Done, Madonna's I'll Remember has a very strong attachment to its film. With Honors deals with a group of Harvard students who find themselves connected to a homeless man, played by Joe Pesci. After Pesci's character dies and all four of the Harvard students graduate, the end credits roll and we hear Madonna singing about the effect someone had on her life. Warner Brothers put a lot of promotion into the song in March 1994, and it worked its way up the Billboard Hot 100 chart, getting to number two in August 1994. At the same time, Can You Feel the Love Tonight was trying to get that high, but couldn't. Remember that a song's placement on the Billboard charts didn't mean anything in the 1990s when it came to deciding whether or not a song should be nominated for an Oscar. It seems, though, that having Madonna's name on it apparently was the death knell for any song, as far as the Academy goes. Disney wasn't the only studio trying to cash in on the animated feature film market in 1994. New Line Cinema, which was an arm of Warner Brothers, produced the movie The Swan Princess, a new take on the Swan Lake story by Tchaikovsky. Broadway lyricist David Zippel teamed up with composer Lex de Azevedo for the film's nine songs, none of which came within a mile of finding the magic that any of the Disney songs had, nor did they even try to match the music of Tchaikovsky. One of the songs that stood out, though, was Far Longer Than Forever, which the two lovers sing as a pledge to never stop loving each other. It reminds me of Somewhere Out There from 1986 because the two apparently are separated by distance and circumstances, but also the 1939-nominated song Faithful Forever. In the review for The Swan Princess, New York Times critic Karen James noted that the May melody of Far Longer Than Forever echoes the first five notes of Beauty and the Beast.
3: If I could break this spell, I'd run to him today And somehow I know he's on his way to me Derek, you and I were meant to be Far longer than forever hold you in my heart. It's almost like you're here with me, although we're far apart. Far longer than
2: forever, as constant as a star. I close my eyes and
3: Unshakable bond,
2: destined to last for a lifetime and beyond, far longer, than far longer than
3: forever.
2: I swear that I'll be true.
3: I swear that I'll be true.
2: I've made an
3: everlasting, everlasting vow to, to find a way to, a way to you. you.
1: Far Longer Than Forever was nominated for the Golden Globe alongside two of the Lion King songs, I'll Remember and Look What Love Has Done. Also nominated for the award was the title song for the Bruce Willis erotic thriller Color of Night. The movie was not liked at all, and the song didn't find an audience either. To say that the Color of the Night was viewed as a better song than Hakuna Matata to the Hollywood Foreign Press Association is a shocker to say the least. Like Streets of Philadelphia the year before, the Golden Globe ceremony on January 21st, 1995, cemented Can You Feel the Love Tonight as the year's frontrunner for the best movie song of the year. Six weeks later, on March 1st, almost four weeks before the Academy Awards, four of the Oscar nominees duked it out at the Grammys for the best song written for the movies, with Hakuna Matata again excluded from the competition. Nominated with those four was Streets of Philadelphia, which was in competition this year due to the different eligibility calendar for the Oscars. And it was Bruce Springsteen who beat out Elton John this year, giving us no indicator of which of the 1994 songs was really going into the Oscars with the best chance of winning. Elton John did win the Grammy that year for Best Male Pop Vocal Performance, though he wasn't competing against any other movie song performances. Film critics and entertainment journalists all over the world were picking Can You Feel the Love Tonight as the pick for the Oscar, even though some liked Circle of Life more. In an article that appeared in the Detroit News, former Billboard editor Paul Green said that Can You Feel the Love Tonight in the heyday of the Oscar song would have been third or fourth down the list. Green didn't say what years were the heyday of the Oscar song, and I can't imagine a year when Can You Feel the Love Tonight would not have been a strong Oscar contender. Many of the pre-show articles mentioned the possibility that Elton John's performance of Can You Feel the Love Tonight would be the highlight of the show. And they were pretty much correct. Sitting at the piano, Elton John naturally looked comfortable performing with very little fanfare, dressed in a black tuxedo with no sparkly eyeglasses or extravagant set design that was prominent at his concerts. Randy Newman also sat at the piano to bang out the notes for Make Up Your Mind on the Oscar telecast. Broadway actor Hinton Battle performed Circle of Life, with Lebo M. performing his uplifting introduction. The performance of Hakuna Matata was blended into the middle of the Circle of Life performance, and I was disappointed that Nathan Lane wouldn't perform with his on-screen buddy Ernie Sabella. David Allen Greer played the role of Timon. Not as well, but good enough and then Hinton Battle finished out Circle of Life with a dancer twirling a hula hoop that was a very literal representation of that circle of life. During this five-minute production number, other dancers dressed as lion cubs or zebras, something that had to give some inspiration to those who would lead the eventual Broadway production of The Lion King. After the commercial break, Elton John raced back to his seat to hear Sylvester Stallone mention his name three times as an Oscar nominee, then once as an Oscar winner for Can You Feel the Love Tonight. The most poignant thanks went to Elton John's grandmother, who had died the week before. Elton John thanked her for making him learn to play piano at three years old, and I'm sure his grandmother was very proud. In your speech, you mentioned um, someone named Dennis Compton. Um, Who was he?
0: Well, I'm shocked, Jeff, that you don't know who Dennis Compton is. Um, He is a very famous cricketer. Is sort of Babe Ruth of cricket, or whatever. Um, Sandy Koufax—all these famous baseball names okay. that we don't know too much about. Um, and Daryl Strawberry was very big at the time of Lion King, yes. I mm-hmm. um, but he was a very famous cricketer who I knew personally. He was—he was quite old um, by then, um, and uh, I just thought some of these thank you speeches are a little bit over the top and I particularly found it somebody thanking God I thought it's a bit arrogant you're sort of saying God has chosen me ahead of the other people and why didn't I mean why would God choose them rather than I mean it it doesn't really matter but but God seemed to be winning a lot of Oscars and um (laughs) I sort of felt that that really on the one hand one is very honored to get these things on the other hand You shouldn't take it too seriously because it doesn't necessarily mean that your song is the best song. It just means it was a song that made most impact at that particular time. Um, And you should, if you can, have a combination of, you know, pride, if you like, but a bit of humility. And if you can make it funny, because sometimes these Oscar speeches, they got worse over the years, by the way. People start making speeches and think they can change the world Um, or think they are the people to change the world. Um, and I just thought who, who can I thank I, I obviously thank Disney and this and the other but I just said I'd like to thank one of my childhood heroes Dennis Compton there's a bit of you know nobody knew who he was so there's a bloke up in the in the in the in the in the gods who suddenly went Yay! Uh-huh. so I thought well oh, there's obviously an, an Englishman in the audience somewhere and afterwards they said you know well i was interviewed afterwards well who's dennis compton has he made any films and i said well he has made a film actually and he had he was in a film about cricket um it was a drama in which he played dennis compton he played himself and and i said yes he was in a film called the final test and um he was very good i felt he captured the the role he was cast in very well very accurately
1: I didn't mention that he was actually playing himself. But um that was quite fun. I mean, it was just a gag really. And so at the Oscars that night it had to be really special you had your daughter with there. Would you? At the I Oscars. did, yes. Um and my son actually both there. and
0: okay. and uh, they they had a great time. So um you know so did I. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, you had a really good time. Yeah, did right. it, did and I know Hans Zimmer said this in his Oscar acceptance speech he said he he thought his kids his kids said that, you know, that he was cool now because he did The Lion King. Did your kids think you were cool now that you had been writing for Disney movies? And I winning awards they, for them? I think they they
0: loved the fact that they were in on something like The Lion King. And, that, you know, that they could see a bit behind the scenes. And going to the Oscars is always fun and everything. Um, I don't know why they thought I was cool. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, I mean, and, and they did appreciate it, um, and, they, and, and they were very nice about it, and, you know, my kids still speak to me, which is
1: amazing, really. With this Oscar win, Disney won its eighth Original Song Oscar, ranking it third among all studios. Paramount still ruled with 14, while 20th Century Fox had nine. Disney's music division continued the celebration as the soundtrack album for The Lion King got a bit of a boost in spring 1995. It never went back to the number one spot, but sales were very healthy for a few more weeks. At the time of those Oscars, Beauty and the Beast was about to celebrate a year on Broadway, with many more years to come. The Lion King was set to be next to make the move from screen to stage, getting its Broadway debut in 1997 and still running as of 2024. After Elton John and Tim Rice helped out with more songs for the stage version of The Lion King, Disney went to use the duo for another musical that might start on stage and later move to the screen. It was the story of Aida, based on Giuseppe Verdi's opera. We're going to hear more songs from Elton John and Tim Rice on this podcast, but separately. The two never worked together on another movie project, especially because Elton John felt that he wanted his next musical to be on the stage. As he was picking up his Oscar for Can You Feel the Love Tonight, Tim Rice was getting his next film project off the ground, which had been in discussion since the late 1980s. That movie was Evita, an adaptation of his hit stage show that was still being performed all over the world 15 years after its debut. It would spawn an Oscar-nominated song that he'll be back to talk about in episode 64 of the Best Song Podcast. Carol Bayer Sager is coming back to the Oscars later on in the 1990s as well. And Randy Newman is coming back to the Oscars on the next episode, getting Oscar nomination number four at the start of a new collaboration. So we've got lots to talk about for songs written in 1995 and I can't wait to share them with you. My thanks to Sir Tim Rice for joining me on this episode and thanks as always to you for singing along with me. If you have questions or comments about the show, you can always send me an email to Swim at AOL.com. Bye for now. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of
0: Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.